Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends. I think I'm supposed to say, welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, or something like that. Really, it's like we've been married for 30 years, right? I can't even bother to introduce myself anymore. Where are my manners? Ah, well, I think it might be because writing these intro and outro pieces are actually the final step in my writing process uh, when I do the show. And I write these, I write the other bits when I'm fresh and when I have a, a real actual thought in my brain. And I usually leave these last bits for just before the deadline when I'm brain dead or more brain dead than usual. I'm still experimenting with the miracle morning. And that, that means getting up at five o'clock and trying to get some quality work done. And I get this killer energy loss, this energy lag of around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm going to try and exercise instead of trying to work through it, see if that helps. It seems like a bit of an artificial trade-off to me, though. A zero-sum game, if you will, trading a couple hours of super clear productivity in the morning for a Walking Dead fugue state in the afternoon. See, I work zombies in there, too. You see that? I just feel like taking a nap most of the time. (laughs) Took Buddy to the groomers this week, got him his summer cut, he looks like a puppy. They made me sign an elderly dog waiver, because he's 11 years old, and they said he was okay with everything until they tried to blow dry his face, and he didn't like that at all. And, you know, that's perfectly understandable. Who does? Since we last talked, I have started running! I'm up to three times a week, and it's a bit grueling. I was out Tuesday at lunch, and it was a bit hot, but humid, and I was trying to keep it in zone two, but my heart rate monitor just would not stay down, no matter how slow I went. But I could still talk in full sentences, and I wasn't breathing hard. So you have to picture me, right? Barely moving down the sidewalk, looking at my watch and shaking my head, and repeating full sentences like the quick red fox jumped over the lazy brown dog. So it was either a monitor malfunction or a could a quadruple bypass event. I don't know. I just stopped looking at it and ran easy. And then I thought about it. I'm running along, worrying about my heart rate, and it occurred to me that I'm just an idiot. And I broke into a big smile because I was out running on a beautiful spring day. And that's our theme today. Stop worrying about the race you have in three months and the race you had three months ago. And just enjoy the fact that you're here and you can do what you love to do. In other news, (laughs) last week I learned how to play Sudoku. So there you go. Old dogs can learn new tricks. And I've gotten partway through the Rubik's Cube. you got to keep your mind active with different things. It turns out the cube is just repeatable algorithms. Some kid in Australia can solve it in like five seconds. Since my plantar fasciitis has resolved itself, I've switched back to wearing barefoot shoes most of the time to strengthen my feet. And don't get me wrong, I'm not running in barefoot shoes, I'm just walking around in them. I have a pair of Vivo barefoot dress shoes 
that I've talked about before, and these are super light and comfy, like wearing slippers at work. And I wear those on the road when I'm traveling now. And I have an old pair of Ultra Lone Trails, which are basically slippers as well. And I wear those around the yard when I'm working and around the office when I'm home. And I think it helps with foot strength and balance and making you mindful of your foot plant. You just have to be careful not to come down too hard on anything because they don't have much protection. And you can bruise your foot, especially your heel. But I think every little bit helps. I am harvesting lettuces already from my garden. There you go. 200 bucks worth of plants and seeds and a few thousand dollars worth of my time and I get a buck 25 worth of lettuce. But it is it's coming on great with any luck and a few thousand dollars worth of my time I might have 10 to 20 bucks worth of fresh produce by the end of the summer. And my berries, my berries are all coming back strong from last year. I'm going to get a big crop of blueberries and red raspberries. The strawberries didn't come back, though. That seems to be the way they are. You get two or three good years, and then they just don't come back. I've planted corn, kale, tomatoes, chard, peppers, all sorts of great stuff. We'll see what grows. If I shift my base of operations down to the Cape, like I'm thinking about, I'll have to find someone to water and weed for me. I also was quite proud of myself this past weekend because I successfully replaced a shower valve in the bathroom without causing any major plumbing disaster in the house. What did we do before YouTube? So that's it, people. I'm ramping up my running and looking forward to some high-quality suffering this summer. And in today's show, we have a chat with David Hollingsworth, who talks about a life event that changed him and how that impacted his endurance sports and life outlook. And in part one, I'm going to talk about living an action-centric life. And in section two, I'm going to give you some tips on how to maintain your sanity <laughs> and the appropriate attitude when you're on the comeback trail. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Why action is the most important habit and why you struggle with it. I am the world's best procrastinator. If there was an Olympic procrastination contest, an event, I would wear the olive wreath crown. But despite this, I manage in the whirlwind existence of day-to-day -day living to get stuff done, good stuff, quality stuff. I'm never satisfied, but I get stuff done. How do I get stuff done while being the world's preeminent procrastinator? Very simple. I force myself to take action. An example would be writing this post or writing anything. I don't know what's going to come out until it starts to flow, and it won't start to flow until I get the gears turning. Once you're in motion, things happen. I don't know why. The pump needs to be primed with action. Why don't we take action? Why would people spend their energy complaining about things instead of taking action to change them? And the number one reason, the why, behind inaction is very simple. It's fear. After you peel back enough layers of the onion, you'll find fear there at the center, like a rotten pit, brown and festering. And what are you afraid of? Mostly failure. Some folks are afraid of the change that action brings. But for the most part, we are afraid of taking the wrong action, making mistakes, and... Heaven forbid, looking like a fool. 
I suppose this has some evolutionary merit. It stops us from running off cliffs and diving into raging rivers. Well, some of us. This consideration of potentially uncomfortable or deleterious results is a limiter that serves to protect us from bad choices. But in today's world, there are no physical alligators over the next hill, only metaphorical alligators, and our built-in limiter stops us from taking action. What you learn when you force yourself to take action is that, yes, indeed, action precipitates mistakes of all sorts. And you know what mistakes is code for? Mistakes is code for learning. These are the important things that taking action brings to the surface. These mistakes quickly float to the surface like dead fish when you begin to move. They reveal blind spots in your knowledge and your skill set. They reveal unsupportive relationships and who your friends and coaches are and who is holding you back for their own petty privilege. Sometimes these mistakes you make are so great they are called failure. Then, (laughs) then you get the true and deep learning. You get thrust into a washing machine of emotional, physical, and life turmoil through failure, and you come out the other end changed. The greater the failure, the greater the cleansing properties. The greater the mistakes, the more you will learn. That rotten fear at the core of your inaction is trying to keep you from these mistakes and this failure but it is keeping you from great learning and soul-cleansing experience. Action is the shortest path between where you are now and somewhere else. In my experience, that somewhere else is always better. You emerge from the washing machine with the dead fish cleaned out, a new and stronger soul, a better human, a possessor of confidence and knowledge that will help not only yourself but your family, your peers, and your community. Yes, my friends, once you surmount the fear of failure and take action, you not only become stronger, you define yourself as a leader. Leaders are out in front, finding the traps and taking the arrows. Leaders are testing the boundaries and finding the right trail. This is how leaders are a service to their communities. This is why you always hear that leaders have a bias for action. When you decide to take action, to do something, to move forward, what are some of the things that will claw at your heels and hold you back? Well, my friends, if you want the quintessential masterpiece on this topic, you should invest in a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, where he eloquently enumerates the many evil faces of inaction, or as he refers to it, resistance. And my two personal And favorite ways to resist taking action are over-planning and useless activity. I have in my possession at any point in time several sheets of paper. On these sheets of paper are all the grand designs and wonderful ideas for projects that I am going to get to. I spend hours poring over plans and details of projects without actually taking any action. When I have spent a good deal of time and energy creating a thorough plan, I lean back in my chair, self-satisfied that I have made progress, and put that project aside. Sometimes forever. The planning has replaced the actual doing. And not only don't I get any results or quality work from this, I don't learn anything. 
over planning is insidious for me because the energy I put into the planning is a substitute for the actual doing. You only have so much energy and creativeness, and you need to focus as much possible into the actual creative act and not thinking and scheming about the creative act. Planning relieves the internal tension and negates the need for action. By over-planning, I'm actually giving way to fear, fear of the unknown. I create plans to avoid taking action because I don't know what to do. I would suggest that instead I could take the same energy and set out on an unknown path in this way, learn the true path. I'm not saying there is no value to planning. The value in planning is that it allows you to take a more direct path to the goal. I'm saying to be careful in how you partition your energy between the planning and the action, to make sure you don't replace the action itself with over-planning. Make yourself a rule that draws a line. Give yourself a deadline or accountability. Build triggers into your plan that force action. Plans create the framework for action, but action creates the value. The second thing that I do very well, and I'm sure a lot of you do this too, is replacing action with busyness. Also in my possession at any point in time will be lists of tasks and to-dos that I'm working on for any day or any week. And I will spend a very productive 8 to 12 hours in a day working feverishly on doing expenses, shopping for groceries, picking up dry cleaning. When I'm not procrastinating by over-planning, I'm procrastinating by keeping busy. The evil nature of busyness is that it feels like you're doing something. It feels like you're taking action, but you're not. You're spinning like a cog in a machine with a broken drive mechanism. Lots of noise and smoke, but no output. You get to draw a smug, self-satisfied line through that task, and get that little hit of dopamine as a reward when you accomplish it. But what do you have at the end of the day? Clean suits, fresh lettuce, and an expense check, to be sure but nothing sustainable. You've learned nothing. You've failed to advance your life an inch. You have taken lots of action that stirred up dust, but when the dust settles, you look around, you haven't moved. To combat these compatriots of resistance, you need to stop kidding yourself about what is useful action and what is not. Planning is not bad in itself, but as a replacement for forward progress, It is stealing your creative hours. Tasks on your to-do list may be essential for life and require your attention, but understand that they do not make a difference. The way I have overcome these two specific afflictions on my ability to take action is by creating sacred space for the important work. And maybe this is on an airplane. Maybe it is out on a meditative run. Maybe this is early in the morning when my mind is bright. And there are no distractions. I sit and work on important work. Work to create something. Work that sustains. In this place, you have a set time that you give to the work and to the action. This can be an hour or two hours on the calendar that you mark aside for this work. This can be quantitative steps like three pages or 1,500 words. What are the habit steps to make a successful sacred place for taking action. Well, first, you set the expectation and you quantify it. I will spend two hours working on this presentation without distraction from 9 to 11 on Friday. You mark it on your calendar. You physically, mentally, and procedurally reserve the sacred space. 
for this action. Second, you remove the distractions. Create your sacred space so that the phone doesn't ring, the texts don't buzz, and you are isolated from social media for that time and space. Set the expectation with yourself and make it part of your habit, your ritual, to disconnect and make sacred this space. When you begin the action at the appointed time, you may have trouble disconnecting from the screaming, shrieking world. It's hard to just switch from busyness mode to creation mode. One tip is to start by relaxing. Do some breathing meditation like we talked about last week. And for the first couple minutes, just try to calm your mind and put the busy things back on the shelf. And this allows your mind to engage in the creativity without looking over its shoulder all the time. This allows you to drop into a creative or action flow state for that sacred time. And recently I've I've begun to put in my earbuds and listen to meditation music while I create. I find it isolates me, but also that the words in normal music are a distraction. And the calming music with no words, just tones, helps me stay in a creative state. And finally, just start. If you have no idea what to do or where to start, don't stress. Stress will create a biochemical negative feedback loop that will block your creativity. Just start. If you're totally stuck, you can bring out a blank piece of paper and free write for a bit or doodle to open up the pathways of action. If I'm working on a presentation, I'll start with a story. I'll begin with a blank sheet of paper and create an outline and draw the storyboard. Then I'll turn that into a first set of slides and a script. If I'm working on research, I'll read and take notes as I go. I create my talking points around the research material as a way of visualizing the content of the message in the research. There's different ways to do it depending on what you have to get done. As you work, resist the demons of distraction. Once you get into action, you still don't have the battle won. Resistance will continue to claw at you as you strive to move important, soul-satisfying work forward. You may have to remind yourself that this is a sacred space, and you need to refocus on the task at hand. When the time is up, or the pages have been read or written, thank yourself. Whether what you have done is good or great, it is action manifested, and you have moved forward. Have gratitude for this time. Rejoice in it. See, that will create a reward for the habit loop to make it a positive feedback loop. When resistance tries to talk you out of this session in the future, you can remember how good and satisfied you felt at the end of your session and how you accomplished. To bring it all full circle, we all procrastinate. You can't serve the world unless you take action. Take action. Make taking action your default setting. Make being action-oriented one of your affirmations and goals. Action is a perfect antidote for complaining. And a little quote from you that we all know from Teddy Roosevelt, and I'm sure I've said this before over the years. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. 
but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. And now for today's featured interview. So how are you today, David? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in Northern Virginia. Yeah, I bet it is. It's pretty nice up here, too, so probably a little warmer where you are. A little bit. Yeah. I just stepped off the bike. I had a uh, hour and 20-minute ride out in the rail trail. Just, uh, just an easy spin. Beautiful day. Although all the people are out, right? So that makes it a little dicey when you have all, all the people out on the rail trail. Yeah, a little bit more traffic to deal with. Yeah, some lady with a small dog on a leash almost uh, ended me. Always got to so, watch out for them. Yeah. So why don't you uh, give us the, the 200 words on uh, who you are and what you do, and then we'll we'll tell your story. Sure. I'm David Hollingsworth. I'm a uh, 53-year-old uh, IT director in Northern Virginia. I have two kids. The reason I'm here today is to talk about what happened to me 10 years ago and the journey from that point to where I am now, where I'm doing a lot of endurance sports and uh, having a lot of fun with it. So what happened 10 years ago, David? Uh, July 9th, 2004, I was learning to ride a motorcycle and being very careful about it, practicing a lot in parking lots and setting up cones and doing all the things that you were supposed to do to be safe. And while I was practicing, I my one of my wheels slipped and I over-revved the bike and it shot out forward. And before I could get on the clutch or the brake to slow down, I hit a curb, bounced off the bike, and landed right in the middle of my back on a curb mm. and essentially broke myself in two. Yeah. So you said that before that, though, you were kind of uh, not not doing much in terms of sports, right? No, I was, you know, weekend warrior at best. I would run a 5K every so often, but not really that interested in it. And with the kids and everything else, it was fairly sedentary at the time. So you had this life event, and you were you were laid up for a while. That would be, to put it mildly. Uh, so what? So what happened? As soon as I hit the ground, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know how bad. Uh, fortunately, uh, a neighbor was walking by and saw it happen. They called nine one one. The paramedics got there and they did the, you know, are you okay? Can you move your feet? Type questions, and they asked me if I could stand, and I said I don't think I can. As soon as I tried to move, I could feel fire shooting tight pains down uh, my left leg. And my right leg, I couldn't feel at all. Yeah. So they immobilized me. They put me in a cervical collar on a, a backboard and transported me to the emergency room. Uh, once I got there, uh, they had me immobilized for two days before they even took me into surgery. Yeah. So what did they find? It's an interesting read on the ER report. It says there was an explosive fracture on three axes of my L2 vertebra. The mm -hmm. laminar canal, the spinal canal, was compressed by 60%. And before I went into surgery, I, I was reading through the report and it said before surgery, the doctor informed the patient and his spouse of the risks and potential complications of surgery. 
And essentially what that boiled down to is we don't know if you're going to walk again. Right. Which, yeah. which he said directly to me. And I didn't really have a choice at that point. My, I couldn't, I couldn't feel my right leg and I went in, I went under not knowing how I would come out the other side. The surgery took over six hours and recovery took a lot longer. Uh, I mean, just to even to get out of the ER. And they had me in critical care for nine days after that before they decided to transport me to rehab. So when they, when they find, you know, when they're, when they're debriefing you on this stuff, um, you know, I think my experience with these kinds of stories is they tend to set your expectations really low. They tend to say things like, you'll never walk again sort of stuff, right? If their, if their intent was to put fear into me, uh, they did a good job because they said, we don't know. The prognosis is unknown, and they did set my sights really low. I expected to come out of there with a very different outcome than I eventually had, but for the first few months, I didn't know that the outcome was going to be any different because I I was in the hospital in rehab, critical care for nine days, and then in a rehab hospital for the next six weeks. So... When you're going through rehab, um, what was your, you know, what were your, what was your attitude? Were you, because I've seen people go three different ways, right? I've seen people be really super positive. I've seen people be really super negative, and I've seen people be mad as hell. I, I think it varied on a daily basis. There were days when I was depressed about it. There were days when I was felt like I'd made progress, or days when I fell back. And one of the points you made on number three there was I found that getting angry about it helped me make more progress. Right. It was a mo- motivator, right? Right. I, I did not, I was upset and mad about being where I was. I couldn't believe that I put myself and put my kids in that situation. And working with the PT, uh, I really had to push to even make minimal progress because at first, for I think about six months, I had to wear a TLSO, a brace that went from my armpits down to my hips. Yeah. And for the first three to four weeks, I couldn't even stand. Hmm. Um, I had to, I was in a wheelchair. I had to be assisted in and out of it. Now, was that because of the, the pain or the, the loss, the, the numbness? Or? Uh, the loss of strength, the pain associated in moving, and, and the fact that I was immobilized in this brace. Right. Um, couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. And it, it took a few weeks just to be able to stand up with using my arms and then to put to put actual weight on my feet. And then for that, yeah. it was a little bit more weight and then using parallel bars and then, then to a walker and then a little bit of progress each day. So at some point, you uh, recover enough to decide that, hey, I want to start running now and biking and doing all this stuff, you know, it's... How, how did how did you make that transition? That took a long time. I only started walking unassisted in the last week before I left the hospital, and I could walk about forty to sixty feet. Um, mm. So when I got home, I was still they had me off work for like six months. Yeah, I can imagine with your job. Yep. Um, well, my job is actually fairly sedentary. <laughs> I do I do IT stuff, but. Um, so there's, there's probably some travel involved, though, right? There was, and I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later, because I did have to travel at one point wearing the TLSO, <laughs> which was interesting. When I was released, I could walk to the neighbor's mailbox and back, and that pretty much exhausted me. But each day, I would gra- I would point to the next mailbox, 
and I would get to the next mailbox. And then the next day I would add another. And after about a month, I was able to walk a mile and then two miles. And then by the time I was, by the time six months went by, I could walk about seven miles in a day. Yeah. Um, and then by that time it was winter. So I was doing a lot of walking, but not much else. By the spring, I decided I wanted to get back on a bike because I had asked the doctor, what can I do? And I said, you know, can I get on a roller coaster? And surprisingly, the answer was yes. Hmm. Um, because after a year, I had healed up enough to where I was relatively normal. Yeah. The, I said, you know, can I ride a bike? Absolutely. Uh, can I run? Only if somebody's chasing you. Yeah. Uh, because at that point, they felt I was fairly fragile. It's, right. I did not run at first. I just took up riding because that's what I could do. Yeah, because if you think about it, your your muscles probably were pretty eutrophied. Yeah, I was pretty weak at that point. Um, yeah. And even a year <laughs> out, you could tell that my left leg was bigger than my right leg. Right. Yeah. So you kind of had to learn how to uh, learn how to do all that stuff again and build up all the supporting muscles. Right. And even clipping and unclipping out of the bike. On the right side, that took a lot of effort until I gained that strength back. Hmm. But I started riding and started on a hybrid uh, just around the neighborhood. And I would expand my boundaries a little bit. And I think it was about three years after, maybe four years after, I got a road bike yeah. and decided I wanted to ride further. And so I worked my way up to 25 miles and to 50 miles and eventually rode my first century. And then... And then I tried a bigger century. Uh, I attempted the assault on Mount Mitchell in 2008, hmm. and it's a very challenging ride. Is that that is that a road? It's it's a, a road it's a road ride. It's a uh, 102 miles. Yeah, it's 11,000 feet of climbing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all of it, almost all of it, in the last 29 miles. So yeah, you roll through the countryside for the first 80 miles, and then yeah. for the last 30. You climb up towards the Blue Ridge Parkway and then eventually to the top of the Mount of Mount Mitchell, which is the tallest peak east of the Rockies. Right. Yeah, that's where uh, a lot of the uh, elite road cyclists train out there on that parkway. Yep. And I got to the Blue Ridge Parkway uh, rest stop and it was cramping so bad I had to sag out. Yeah. So I did that and then two weeks later I was I was doing a lot of bike commuting and that was one of my training methods. Um, I had like a 21-mile one-way trip to work. So like two to three times a week, I would ride to work. A couple weeks after that, uh, I was crossing a street where both sides had stopped at a marked crosswalk to let me go through on the trail. Yeah. And a car, three cars back, passed everybody on the right to get around them. I never saw them <laughs> until I was on his hood. Yeah. And so hit me, I rolled down on the hood, still clipped on the bike, and you know, got hauled off in the ambulance again. Fortunately, not hurt as badly as I was in 2004. Yeah. Uh, but I did have a cracked vertebra from it. No kidding. So it took a year to recover from that. You know, I was still yeah. riding, but I was on a reduced schedule. I had to be careful about how I got on and off the bike and did not run at all. So fast forward to 2012, I was doing a little bit of riding. I was doing you know, a little whatever, but my weight was higher than I wanted it to be. And 
I didn't feel like I was getting to where I wanted to go. I felt like I could push myself harder. And I wanted to go back and do Mount Mitchell because that still stuck with me that I never finished it. Sure. So <laughs> I started putting out a plan where I was going to not only ride and improve my ability there, but also get back to running. Because I love to run. And I wanted to find a way that I could run and not injure myself to build up my strength slowly enough that I could run and not put my back in jeopardy. So just start out with a, a lot of core work. I did a lot, and... a, a lot of core work, a lot of swimming. Um, as I would run, I would only go outdoors <clears throat> at first once a week. Yeah. Because running on the roads was harder than running on the treadmill. Yeah. And so I would never run two days in a row. Uh, I would never add more than 5% in length to any run. Any mm. week, it would never go more than 5%. So I've heard they say 10%, but I cut that in half. Yeah, I always go with the 110% rule myself. Yeah. But <laughs> And I changed my running gait a little bit. To clean it up a little you bit. To clean it up to move more forward and less up and down. Right, right. that helps a, lot. That uh, helps I ch- a lot. I changed the shoes I was running in. Yeah. Um, and by doing all those things, I was able to increase my distance in, you know, went from a mile to two miles to a, my first 5K to a 10K <clears throat> to a 10 miler. And last fall in 2013, I did a half marathon at um, in Indianapolis. Yep. The Monuments yep. run. And yep. I did I did an under two hours, did like a 153, which is great for me. Yeah. And then I said, you know, I can do even more. So I set my sights on a couple of things. I wanted to do a rowing competition. So I did the Mid-Atlantic Erg Sprints. And I love by you, they have the Christ B Sprints, the uh, World Championships yeah. up in Cambridge. Uh, it's part of that. And I was able to do like a, a 753 for 2,000 meters, which was... Uh, I think it's ranked 540th in my age group in the world. But I think there's not a lot of people actually record their time, so it is what it is. But it was fun to see where I was ranked. I did the uh, Empire State Building run-up in February. Sure. Yeah, that's hard to get into, isn't it? It was really hard to get into. Uh, They only had 550 people in this year. And I was able to get in through a charity uh, where I raised money for the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. And that was just a blast. Yeah. Um, it was less running and more hiking, you know, doing right. two yeah. stairs at a yeah. time. Yeah. But it was fun, and not a lot of people get to do it, so it was really cool. And then I said, what can I do next? Well, you know, that's interesting because I was, <clears throat> there was one point in my life where I was doing a lot of mountain running, and I'd be on, you know, away on work someplace like Florida. Right. Where there's no mountains to run on, and I'd just find the hotel stairs, you know, and do the hotel stairs up and down um, just to keep the quads strong. That's what I did for this. I uh, worked in a nine, a seven-story building, but if you went down to the lowest level of the parking garage and you went to the utility closet on the last floor, you could get ten floors in. Yeah, so, and I really, I really liked it, especially because if you met somebody in the stairwell, they looked at you like you were crazy. I get that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> especially for the other stuff that I'm doing. It's like, you know, a lot of people, you know, in their early fifties are 
getting sedentary or have been sedentary for a number of years. Yeah, and you get you get both where you are in Virginia because you get some of the old South where the guys your age will be definitely very sedentary. Yeah, but it's also some of the new South where they're um, sort of urban, urban active people. As True, well. and there are a lot of really hardcore athletes, um, and it's it is a real pain to try to place in my age group. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's always a there's always a ringer even in the small neighborhood races. Right. But um, after I did Empire, I said, you know, I've never done a triathlon. So I set my sights. I, I'm an okay swimmer, uh, but I signed up with uh, the DC Tri Club, got in their new triathlete program, and I've, I've done two sprint triathlons in the last month. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. They're not as hard as they sound either. No. I, I would say it's actually a good... Well, you know, there's a bit of a cost barrier, but a bit of a time barrier, too. But in terms of difficulty, I don't think uh, a sprint try is really low on the difficulty level. Right. And it's it's uh, different enough. And you meet some great people. Yeah. And it's kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, we had the new triathlete program was just a blast. Um, everybody helped each other out. Uh, they would share tips on whether it was swimming tips or buying a bike or I mean, I already yeah. had a decent road bike, but a lot of people yeah. didn't. They were riding hybrids. Yeah. Everybody wants you to, those uh, triathlete people are, that's uh, part of, uh, part of the sickness is to get you to buy a really expensive bike, right? Well, and what I found a saying I always live by, it's a lot easier and cheaper to take the weight off of you than it is the bike. Yeah, exactly. So for me to lo- for me to take five pounds off the bike, that's going to be a couple thousand dollars. For me, to take, so, for me to take five pounds off, it's three weeks of eating right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you look at, you know, I talk to a lot of people who have these sort of life events, negative life events, and they end up, you know, it ends up changing their lives. Amazing, you know, just like like smashing, you know, a, a, a light bulb, you know, as opposed to a light bulb going off. And it just changes their lives, right? I found that to be true for me. Uh, And would you think that if it hadn't happened, you might have come to the same epiphanies? That's that's the whole um, Isaac Newton and and inertia thing. You know, an an object in motion or at rest tends to stay in that state until acted on by an outside force. So some outside force would have to happen. Uh, right. So, so the question, you know, what you always say to people is say, what can you do that's big enough to break your frame, of, you know, your frame to break you out of your inertia, and hopefully it doesn't have to be break your back, right? I I would not recommend that as the catalyst. Right. Um, because right. it was. So people have asked me, will I get on a motorcycle again? No, I won't, uh, because <laughs> the risk of something like that happening again is high. Uh, because cars don't see you no matter what you're on. And the downside is so great that I'm going to push myself in other directions. But the whole changing the picture is got me thinking about, okay, at age 53, how many good years do you have left to really push yourself and expand? Right? Yeah. So I set my sights to say, okay, 10 years post the accident, what do I want to do? I want to do the Empire State Building do a triathlon, I'm going to go back and run the Marine Corps Marathon because I did it in 1994. Hmm. And by getting back into running, by 
doing it smarter than I used to do it. I'm able to run a half with no problem. And tr- my training program for Marine Corps starts this next week. Um, sure. My goal is to not only run it 20 years after I did before, but to run it faster than I did 20 years before. And I think I can do it. Yeah, well, you certainly know more now, don't you? Yeah, it's uh, a little bit smarter. Um, I know a little bit more about what not to do. And I know I need to start early enough so that the leap from the half to the full is not like how I did in New York, where I never ran more than 16 miles. This is back in 1989. And I ran so fast the first three miles, by mile 17, I was done. Yeah, well, that's pretty pretty typical for new new marathoners. Yeah. So I did expand <laughs> my boundaries, and I'm doing a lot more things even outside of the endurance sports. I, right, because what it ends up being is it ends up being, we talk about it being a keystone habit, right? right? So you change this one thing, and it changes your entire frame. It changes the way you approach. It starts to pull everything else into its gravity well, yeah, right? and it probably, probably impacts your family as well. Absolutely. Uh, the relationships are much better. Um, for the uh, Empire State Building, I had never raised money in my life. And I was worried that I would just have to be writing a big check to get in. Um, I doubled my goal. Yeah. Instead of raising 2500 I raised 5000 um, right. I got yeah. interviewed by three different newspapers. I got back into Toastmasters and getting out and speaking more. Right. And I competed in the humor speech contest in the fall. I competed in the uh, international speech contest just recently. Oh, good for you. And those are things I probably would not have thought about getting back into had I not been doing these other things. Right. So, but, you know, you have a a fairly high-level job. Um, How do you you balance the two? And, um, you know, how do you explain it to the folks that you're working with when you're on a project and everybody's doing the old... uh, 14-hour day thing to make the project deadline? I, I think there are three things. One is you have to have very good boundaries. Two, you have to be clear about where, about what you're going after, both from a work standpoint and a personal standpoint. Because if you're not clear about what you're going after, the boundaries are hard to enforce. The third part of that is I don't know of anybody who is more productive after 50 hours than people who set a clear boundary to say, okay, it's going to be 40 to 50 hours and I'm done because once you get to 55, 60 hours, there's a lot of space in there. Mm. So if you are focused on what you need to get accomplished, you can actually get that 14-hour day down to something more manageable. Right. It it helps. Being busier actually helps you get more done sometimes. Yeah. Uh, It's like when I have to write proposals (laughs) for work, most of my time writing a proposal is sitting not writing. Going going back to something earlier you said that I wanted to hit um, is it, we talked about outside forces acting on people. One way to accelerate that is to get in motion however you get in motion. Uh, one of the things I found about exercising it is the hardest part is getting out the door. Mm-hmm. Once you get out the door, you know, once you take the first step, the second step is a heck of a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it's exercising, it's a, it, yeah, yeah, and the experts call that a bias to action. Yeah, you can't motivate yourself into feeling better. You've got to act into feeling better. So 
like whether it's exercising or writing, it's I, I for work I have to write something. Even if it's something I'm copying off another page, it's getting in that motion because the next step, the second step is a lot easier. Once you're in motion, it's easier to redirect in the direction you need to go. So spend less time trying to make that direction perfect than than to get moving. Because once you're moving, it's like driving a car that um, when you're trying to steer it sitting in one place, it's really hard to turn the wheels. Once you're moving, just a little bit of input can get you exactly where you need to go. So it's it's interesting. I was thinking you're you're a project manager. Yep. And uh, I was thinking today when I was out on my ride about uh, the Iron Triangle, right? Right. So you can either have quality, time, or cost. Right. In a project, you get to pick two. Well, that's why I said that's the good, fast, and cheap. And pick two, and you're done. And I think I I, I can apply the same metaphor to my training. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, you've got you've got intensity, you've got duration, yep. you've got frequency. Yeah. So you get to, and pain. You get to really I think cost. I think. Yeah, I think cost is pain. Yeah. Yeah. But that would be your so intensity. You, yeah. Right. You can optimize two of those. Yeah. Yeah. So and, that's funny. And in training for um, both Mount Mitchell, uh, which um, I just did. In fact, that that's on my blog. I'll send you an email about that uh, because I had a really hard time finishing it this time. I did finish, but I was the last official finisher. Yeah. And I was learning about, okay, the mountain's not getting any bigger. You got to keep pushing yourself. But in getting to that goal or whether it's working towards a Marine Corps goal, it's, I can't do this. I can't do that level of intensity because I'm not 22 years old. Right. So I have to dial the intensity back a little bit and start earlier, build up more slowly, because I know where I want to be at the end. Right. So you work yeah. your way backwards and say, okay, June 7th is where I start training for October 26th. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's, it's, it takes more, uh, it takes more of a run up when you get older. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you can't achieve those things. I'm, I'm having a blast when I'm out there. Um, and, it's even more fun when I see somebody in their seventies right out yeah. there. That's that's just awesome. <clears throat> well, hopefully we can both be out there when we're uh, seventy, right? That is that's the plan. So, so um, do you have any links that you'd like to share? Sure. Um, I think the most the most important one would be um, check out my blog. It's at hollyworks.com. That's H-O-L-L-I-W-O-R-K-S dot com. And I write on there about a number of things, but what I've been writing a lot about recently are pushing boundaries, about get, learning how to deal with failure and coming back from that. Mm. Uh, I wrote about my recovery a few weeks ago, and that's a, a blog entry called Evolution, which is something that I'm turning into a speech with Toastmasters because it's a story that if I can learn how it applies to other people, it's not just my story because lots of people have setbacks. And if I can communicate what I've learned by coming back from that, that can benefit a lot of other people. All right. So I'm going to take you to the exit now, okay. David. 
It was a it was a pleasure speaking with you this afternoon. I've had fun. All right. Good luck. Good luck today. You gonna get a workout in today? I'm going to uh, hit the pool later on this afternoon. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Have a great afternoon and uh, take care. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Coming back. Training, like life, is not a straight line. Let's tackle a specific moment in your training. You are a successful endurance athlete. You have conquered your sport. You have run great races and excelled at grueling endurance events. It changed your life. You became a different and better person. Then something happened. Maybe it was a chronic injury or a life event or a motivational issue, or just a scheduling problem, now you're at the bottom of the mountain again, looking up at your fitness. You're wondering, how were you ever that fit? And you doubt yourself and your abilities. It's only human. You worked so hard. As you look down at your jiggling adipose tissue, now you feel lost. How will you ever climb back up that mountain, and regain your fitness, and more importantly, regain your endurance self, that lean, hard, indestructible athlete that you were. The things that one time were easy are now hard, and you are shackled by self-doubt. I have some advice for you athletes who find yourselves in the out-of-shape phase or even a slump of motivation, and I'll summarize. Get over yourself. What? You're expecting more? Oh, okay. I'll disassemble, reassemble, and declarify it for you. But seriously, get over yourself. Get out of your own way and enjoy the process of climbing the mountain. Yesterday was yesterday. There's nothing you can do about that. So you should stop obsessing over it and get on with your life. Step one, the winding road. Accept that training, like life, is not a straight line. There will be ups and downs. Sometimes the highs will be quite high as you blast through your goals with nary an effort. Sometimes the lows will be quite low as life knocks you down with a haymaker from your blind side. It's all just part of life. It's a roller coaster ride, and you can determine to either scream like a scaredy cat baby or throw your arms up in the air and laugh like a maniac. Accept the non-linear nature of training in life. Decide to enjoy the ups and the downs, both as unique celebrations of your own existence. Own it. Step two, never stop. Don't give up. I guarantee you are a strong person. If you have had endurance success in the past, I guarantee that you are a strong person. You are going to need that strength. It is much harder to fight a retrograde action on your training and fitness than to compete. Every day you have to assess where you are and how much you can do. Every day you have to get up and do what you can, even if no progress is being made. Even if you can merely slow the slide out of fitness, it's a win over entropy. If all you can do is a five-minute ride and a half a dozen push-ups, then do them. And be grateful for the opportunity. The doctors may say you are permanently broken and cannot be fixed. That's never true. I speak to people every week who have overcome some you'll never walk again life event to regain 
their endurance lives. Surely you can outlast some pesky tendonitis or fasciitis. It may take months, it may take years, but you have the strength and discipline to smile back and say, it's okay, I've got all the time in the world. The only injury that can really stop you is a broken human spirit. It takes great mental strength to keep pounding away at an intractable door, but this is what you must do in the interregnum. Never give up. Step three. Easy does it. Take your time. Those of us who have achieved endurance success will try to skip steps in our recovery. Doing too much, too fast, is a sure way to get yourself injured and set yourself back. It's hard. When you look at where you were versus where you are, the chasm between the two states seems immense and you want to rush over it as quickly as possible. In truth, the slower you start, the better your chance of getting back to the summit. It's going to be a long process, and you need to focus on getting strong first before you leap back into training and racing. Play a long game. Do the things now that will make you successful in six months and a year. Do the discipline stretching. Do the yoga. Do the meditation. Do the balance and core work. The miles will come. Patience is your ultimate weapon of personal strength. Step four, don't compare yourself to your prior self. We all do it. We remember the personal records and those days when everything clicked and we kicked the race's ass. We long to live, to exist in this state of superhuman achievement. But in recovery, we have to set that person aside. There is no benefit to comparing yourself negatively to that earlier version of you. For sure, you can celebrate them in your reminiscences but they don't exist anymore. They are like the water in the river and have flowed out to sea. The Buddha said that you cannot step in the same river twice. That person is gone. But the strength of that athlete is still with you. No, really, you are an amazing athlete with an amazing machine. That is inside of you, and no injury or life event can change that. That previous athlete is not mocking you, in your current state, that previous athlete should be the seed and core of your inner fire and confidence. They are still there. Comparing yourself to that previous athlete cannot help you today. Today is today. You are who you are. Celebrate that fact and work with it. Partner with that older version of yourself to build confidence for that slow climb back. Step five, learn. The unique opportunity of having to climb the fitness mountain from the bottom is learning. Each step of the way, you get to find and consider learning moments. Expect them and cultivate them. After you have set your prior self aside and come to peace with your current state, you can approach the recovery with the mind of a child, be bright-eyed and interested in the way your body responds to training. Find wonder in the rise and fall of your heart rate, the aches and pains, the soreness in your core. When you are on top, you're a passenger. When you're climbing, you're a student. Instead of being frustrated, be curious. Be grateful. Embrace your journey as you have the opportunity to learn deeply about yourself and your machine. Find learning moments. Find the valuable lessons in your recovery and rebirth. Step six, help others. The history of humanity is shared experience. When we are faced with challenges, we pull together to pool our strength. 
In recovery, athletes have a tendency to hide, to pull away from their athletic world because they don't feel worthy of it anymore. I can't run anymore. Why would real runners want to talk to me? This is nothing more than some cheap form of self-punishment. The more you stay engaged, the faster you will be pulled out of your slump. There are people out there, thousands of people, young and old, who have gone through what you're going through, are going through it too, or will go through it eventually. Get out of your self-pity cubicle and go find them. Seek help from the community. Offer help to the community. Be of service. You are in a unique position to face challenge with a group of people like you. Pool your strength, stand shoulder to shoulder, and fight the dragons of injury and recovery together. Shared experience is a deep and valuable tool in recovery. I have ridden the injury and recovery cycle many times throughout the years. Every time it seems like the end of the world. Every time I wonder if I will ever be able to run again. Every time I keep moving forward because I know it's not my body my performance, or even my training that makes me indestructible. It's my mind and my life force and my stubbornness that makes me indestructible. And life can do what it wants me because I know that when the smoke clears, I'll still be here smiling and moving forward. Your endurance achievements are not the purpose of your life. They are part of your life. Whether you can run or not does not define you. So one, life has its ups and downs. Expect it, manage it, Enjoy the ride. Two, never stop. Time is an illusion. Keep moving and you will eventually get where you want to go. Three, take it easy. Recovery is a game of patience. Don't rush it. Four, embrace the now. Don't compare yourself to your former greatness. Today is what you have. Celebrate it and be grateful for it. Five, learn. Treat your recovery time as a series of learning moments. Have the open-mindedness of a child and be a student. And six, bring value to your community. Throughout your recovery, have the intent of service. See you back at the top, my friends. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Had a great run with Buddy in the woods last night. I ignored my heart rate munder again and just ran easy. The legs were sore from a leg workout on Wednesday, but it, it was quite a joy to be out on the trails with my dog. And seven miles was a bit long for Buddy, and he's getting up a little slowly today. He'll sleep it off. He's up in my bed right now recovering. It was really nice out. It was 66 degrees and misty, perfect trail running weather. If you were one of the 361 people on my mailing list, you got the link to the meditation piece I did last show, and I edited it up so it's standalone with some Zen music from Podsafe, and you can also find the post on my website, runrunlive.com. If you have issues with the website, uh, just keep trying. I'm trying to move my site over to a different hosting provider, and it's taken forever. After five years, we've accumulated a lot of stuff. Once I get it up and running, I'll revamp it. It's time. It's getting long in the tooth. Since we're closing in on 300 podcasts, I've been thinking about a new theme and a new format. 
And if you were one of the 93 members on the Run Run Live Facebook group, you'd know I've been batting around some ideas and looking for feedback. And our current theme is the transformational power of endurance sports. And I think the next theme will be something around service through endurance sports to change the world. I would interview people who are making an impact on our community, and I would work the questions around how can we, through our running and training, change the world. And I'm not just talking about charity running. I'm talking about setting an example and building a sphere of influence. What do you think? And for the other two segments, I'm considering some combination of reading other people's impactful blog posts, some more comedic pieces, and a Q&A session with a guest host. And let me know your thoughts. And, oh yeah, sorry, but my core followers, you know, those folks on the email list and in the Facebook group, they want the punk rock back. I know, right? Come on! Doesn't that lift your spirits? <laughs> Come on! I kind of remember this, <laughs> the 70s. <laughs> Sorry, back to running. Yeah, I'm up to seven miles or so, three times a week, and climbing. I'm sore, but structurally sound. Mark Robert Sands, you remember Mark from the 366 Project interview? He had the same peroneal tendonitis in his ankle that I have, and he sent me a video on how to work the trigger points to keep it at bay, and it seems to be working. So that's on my website as well, or no, on my, uh, sorry, that's on my Facebook page. So you can look at that if you have the perennial tendonitis. I haven't actually signed up for any races yet, but I'm looking for something to take a late summer swing at a qualifier. I might go back to Pocatello. I'm leaning towards that. I know the course now. A bunch of people I know are going there this year. I'm also in the midst of investigating a rim-to-rim-to-rim run, and it's on my bucket list. The way I want to do it is run across on the first day, stay at the lodge, and then run back the next day. And so, anybody interested in doing that? It would be in late April, early May of 2015. And it's about a marathon distance each way with drastic weather changes and about 4,500 feet of loss and gain on each trip. But I hear the scenery is beautiful. So life is good. And that's one of the secrets, being able to live in the present and celebrate it. Part of it is simply having a positive outlook and looking for the abundance instead of complaining and looking for the scarcity. Part of it is being okay with the fact that there are things you cannot change, things that are out of your control. You pour your energy and spirit into those things that you can influence and you can make a decision to accept and not worry about those things you can't. Part of it is being aware and awake in the present. Why continue to suffer about events in the past? You can't change them. Why let yourself be worried about events in the future? They're in the future, and you're mortgaging today in the process. Take the time to smile and enjoy the hard work that life is. You only have one today, so celebrate it. Cheers.
Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm CYKT Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao. I'm not a